Um, it really gives me great pleasure to be able to talk about this country that I love with its warm, friendly people. And I call this um, talk uh, Cuba, embodiment of the first parameter. So why am I discussing Cuba to the Zen group today? And what does Cuba have to do with Buddhism? I believe that both generosity, udana, and the importance of community are integral to both. Can everyone hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, I first became interested in South American politics after for the fall of the democratically elected government in Cuba um, under Allende and the replacement largely by the CIA of this uh, very corrupt dictator Pinochet. And then I watched similar situations occur throughout South America, including Cuba, uh, which was, uh, in which Batista was deposed with the revolution. And uh, I was really a bit distressed to hear yesterday about the condition, the situation in, uh, in Brazil that's happening right now. <coughs> um, Several years ago, I joined the Cuba Friendship Society of WA, and as part of this group, I learned a lot more about the generosity that was happening in Cuba, in the world. Uh, the seeds of this generosity were sown by the philosophy of those who wanted to respond to the terrible situation of the poor and the dispossessed. The descendants of slaves and peasants were living uh, in abject poverty. They had no health care, education, electricity, and even in the countryside, the roads were either non-existent or totally inadequate. I witnessed firsthand the, uh, some of Cuba's generosity in the two visits that I had with international brigades. Well, the first one was an international brigade, and I was only one of two Australians in it. The Southern Cross Brigade that's from Australia and New Zealand usually goes at the end of December when I went in the middle of the year. And then the second time I went was with the French Brigade. So I didn't really go as a tourist. I went to find out what was going on in Cuba, um, you know, from a different point of view. Um, and I witnessed firsthand, um, sorry, and there I met uh, fellow lovers of Cu Cuba from all over the world. And in fact, on the first brigade that I went on, I shared a room with um, five Argentinian women, two of whom were doctors who had gone to see how a more generous system was operating uh, of medicine than, than in their own country. Um, and I was fortunate enough to meet with Cuban doctors and teachers in the clinics and schools, and tasted the generosity of the ordinary Cuban people in the towns and villages. As well, I experienced their vibrant culture through art, music, and dance. And it's, there's a huge amount of creative energy in Cuba, and it just, you know, the beautiful murals that are just on any walls that you see, and you go into a cafe and there's music everywhere. So it was really quite invigorating. 
In uh, Robert Aitken's book, The Practice of Perfection, he gives the, dict the dictionary definition of dana as charity or almsgiving of goods, money, and teaching. Uh, it is with the dana paramita, he goes on to say, that the Buddhist uh, teaching of universal harmony is put into practice. Mutual interdependence becomes mutual support. It is a practice that is not only Buddhist, but is perennial as well, he says. And he quotes Emerson on the endless circulation of the divine energy. The wind sows the, wind sows the seed, the sun evaporates the sea, and the wind blows the vapor onto the field. The rain feeds the plant, and the plant feeds the animal. Likewise, the great Cuban, Cuban poet and revolutionary, uh, Jose Marti, said that all the glory of the universe is, can be found in a single grain of corn, a single kernel of corn. So we all know how bountiful and generous nature is to us. In accord with this generosity from nature, H. Aitken Roshi noted the custom giving, the ancient custom of gift giving, circulating gifts, kept the primal human society going. The Native Americans who welcomed the Puritans in Massachusetts knew this well. And the potluck gift giving ceremony was widely used in Canada and Northwest America. And we've all witnessed great generosity from um, other religions, Christianity, Hinduism, the Sikh communities, as well as with Buddhist and other groups. And Aitken Roshi says that dana is the hallmark of human maturity. And an example of, of our group here in West Australia, giving to community, was when the Zen group uh, taught meditation to the prisoners in Bunbury Jail. So that's a, um, an example of society giving out. Joan Halifax Roshi also noted that we are going through global changes that are difficult for us even to begin to understand. And I really related to her idea that in giving, the separation between people disappears. We say in our sutras that greed, hatred, and ignorance rise endlessly. And certainly Zazen allows us to become aware of our own, short, our own shortcomings in this regard. And this changes us in subtle but profound ways. In our staunchly market-based economy and philosophy, there is a countervailing obstacle to our individual wishes for a more generous society. Although Cuba doesn't lay claim to any religious precepts, in its underlying philosophy certainly gives rise to great generosity in its actions. My experience of Cuba is one of community being more important. And I have a, unfortunately I couldn't work out how to do, 
how to incorporate a little bit of the films in this, but there's a Power of Community, which is a beautiful DVD that covers all aspects of Cuban life and how, they, how it works together, because they work together as community. If anyone ever wants to borrow it, they're welcome to. Um, and whereas in sharp contrast to Cuba, we are surrounded by a society where the individual is paramount. Perhaps because of its forced separation from Western influences, as well as inspiration from its enlightened leadership, Cuba has been able to live up to its revolutionary ideals. And whilst Buddhism is very recent in Cuba, generosity isn't. And I hope to show that the spirit of Dharma, Dana is well and, live, and truly alive in this small, beleaguered nation. I'll just give a little bit of history for background information um, in Cuba. And Cuba's, uh, Christianity's been very strong there since the arrival of the Spanish, since the conquest and <coughs> invasion, if you like, of the Spanish. Uh, with the influx of slaves from Africa, together with its indigenous populations, um, Cuba is a mixed race today, being mainly Spanish and Afro-Spanish. The slaves brought with them their own religions, and these eventually mer merged with the dominant Catholic faith, and uh, that is uh, called Santeria, and it's a, sort of a blending of those faith traditions. At the time of the revolution, there were most Christian denominations flourishing in Cuba. However, these were mainly in the large cities and catered for the upper and middle classes, especially regarding their schools. The churches and church schools had been seen by the revolutionary leaders as being elitist and dependent on the US-backed dictator and on the United States, which had made it clear that it was an en enemy of the revolution. Fidel Castro, son of a landowner, was educated in Marist and Jesuit boarding schools and eventually became a lawyer. He was strongly influenced by José Martí, uh, who died in an earlier revolution in the 19th century, late 19th century. He was an intellectual, poet and philosopher who was strongly opposed at that time to the neglect of the poverty-stricken elements of Cuban society. A large statue of Martí is in a prominent position in Revolution Square in Havana today, and he is considered to be the father of the nation. So, although churches were tolerated in post-revolutionary Cuba, they were not supported by the state, and atheism became the official party policy. In 1985, a well-known Brazilian Dominican father and liberation theologist, Frei Beto, visited Fidel Castro, and they had a long conversation about religion over a number of days. And that resulted in a, in a book called Fidel and Religion, and it sold millions of copies throughout the world, including, and had about 32 translations uh, into different languages. Frey Beto and Fidel found much in common, relating the humanitarian aims of the Cuban Revolution to the work of Christ and his revolutionary work with the poor in opposition to the Jewish elders of the day and in the context of a harsh Roman Empire. 
Following their discussion, Fidel admitted that a freer religion in Cuba may help the revolution in their task of establishing justice. Fidel opened a closer dialogue with the Catholic bishops, but the churches still felt uncomfortable. They still saw the aims of teaching the gospel in the context of a capital capitalism with its associated capital assets, rights, and privileges, rather than as being within the aims of socialism. These tensions uh, weren't eased until after the visit to Cuba in 1998 of Pope John Paul II, whom Fidel greatly admired. Membership of the Communist Party was then opened up to active members of all religions uh, and um, remains so today. Of course, we know that the current Pope Francis from Argentina is attempting to move the Catholic Church more towards alleviating the oppression and suffering of the poor. And he has been uh, quite influential in his discussions with Obama about the lifting of the economic blockade, which has had tremendously negative impacts on Cuba, and also the return of Guantanamo Bay. And to date, uh, of course, Obama has been unable to get it passed through, um, through Congress. I'm only aware of one Buddhist sect in, uh, in Cuba, and that's the Soga Gakkai. Um, its president, Daisaku Ikeda, has encouraged cultural, uh, including student exchanges to Cuba, between Cuba and Japan, since 1981. The Soga Gakkai gave uh, particular emphasis to the inspirational life and teachings of Jose Marti and the impact of his passionate spirit on the world. Um, the Soga Gakkai was accredited as a religious institution by the government of Cuba, I think in 19, 2004. So religion can flourish in Cuba on the proviso that it does not run counter to the revolutionary ideals. Right-wing fundamentalism, as we see in um, the West and the East, would not... Um, would not be tolerated in Cuba. So I'll give a flavor of the only country I know where gener generosity has flourished on such a large scale. And it covers the major institutions essential for a healthy society. But because of time limitations, I'll only discuss here education and health although I admire greatly their agricultural revolution in which Cuba, I understand, is the only fully uh, organic uh, country, has an organic food in solely um, that I'm aware of in the world. But I also will mention that since 19, um, 1988, Cuba ha 1998, Cuba's um, had embarked on a... Um, a reforestation of Cuba because uh, when the Spanish arrived at that, at that time there was about 90% of the country covered in beautiful forest and then with the establishment of sugarcane plantations and the chopping down of the trees uh, by the time of the, uh, the, the uh, Castro revolution in 59 there was only 14% of the forests remaining so Cuba's been actively uh, trying to uh, reforest its country, and I was really lucky enough to visit one of the uh, projects 
um, and it was just beautiful, the amount of work that went on. And, and how they did it was they established a, a small community of people in this area and pr providing them with teachers and a doctor and then they just worked and they just planted trees and, you know, and that's how they did it. So I have greatly admired because I'm terribly worried about the number of trees that we're chopping down. Um, education and health for the masses became the, the uh, party's primary focus immediately following the revolution. And one of the first, first things that happened was that the leaders called for 2,000 volunteers to uh, move out into the countryside to teach the, the peasants and the people that couldn't read and write basic literacy skills. And those volunteers came forth quickly and uh, they were dispatched to all parts of Cuba and it was certainly voluntary. Um, and they worked for two years, uh, working mostly with the peasants in the fields during the day and then teaching them literacy skills in the evenings. And when they returned after two years, they were great heroes. And I recently uh, saw um, a video of the, some of the people in, that had been in that original uh, volunteer uh, brigade and, um, and saying how much it had changed their lives to be involved in that. And some of, and they were mostly young people and many of them women and particularly the women found that their lives before had been, some of them were from quite comfortable backgrounds, but they found that their lives had been fairly prescribed and, you know, not, not a great deal of um, challenge to them. But when they came back from the, this experience, many of them moved into professions to teaching medical and other professions. So they found it profoundly um, um, good for them. So education and health for the masses became the part, sorry, <coughs> I've missed that. Where am I? Yeah, I just mentioned about the, the situation of women because one of the earliest stated aims of the revolution was to have a representative democracy. And Cuba has one of the highest levels of female parliamentary representation in the world, uh, demonstrated by the people in 2013 electing 299 deputies, female deputies, out of 612. That's over 49%. And um, I'll just mention that those, uh, those uh, deputies don't have to be a member of the Communist Party today. Um, but what they have to do is demonstrate that they have done something in their community that has been for the community and has been a benefit to the community. So that's sort of the prerequisite before they're admitted into Parliament. And so figures from 2012 also showed that women made up 50%, over 50% of the labour force, and a large number of lawyers and judges were women. And certainly they have um, twice as many engineers, female engineers as they do in Australia and the United States. The maternity leave is generous and I'll just talk about Mother's Day, which is a huge celebration in Cuba and I happened to be there uh, for Mother's Day um, in eastern Cuba, in Santiago de Cuba. And I was amazed, all these people carrying flowers everywhere and taking their mothers out for a meal and then there was singing and dancing in the streets until quite late in the evening. It was, and it is a huge celebration there, more so than it is here even. 
Um, so anyway, there were now uh, universities in all provinces of Cuba and several in Havana, and all levels of education in Cuba are free. And Cuba has currently a literacy rate of 98%. Um, and Cuba developed an adult literacy program uh, in the 1960s called Yes, I Can. And recently it's been successfully trialled in New South Wales with a project called the Wilcania Project, um, with, with some of our indigenous people who didn't have literacy skills. And um, they're taught by their own indigenous teachers under the supervision of Cuban teachers. And um, I don't know if anyone saw a couple of weeks ago on the Insight program on SBS, they were talking about adult literacy, and there was an Aboriginal woman uh, that was just so joyous about what she had learned in the Wilcannia project and the difference that it had made to her future aspirations. So it was really, I was really moved to see that. It's been highly successful and it's planned to be used with other uh, communities in Australia. Another great achievement of the revolution is the widespread health system, free from cradle to grave. The ratio of doctors to patients is very high and each family is allocated a local doctor and nurse at a ratio of about 150 to 200 families. And maternal and infant health services are particularly strong with there being home visits for the very young, I think certainly be probably up to three or four years of age, they get visited in their homes. The live birth rate, high birth weight, as well as longevity in Cuba are comparable to any Western country. And within Cuba, they make every effort to integrate their disabled people into the society. And most, there's Cuba Friendship Societies all over the world and several in Australia and New Zealand. And um, usually, just as Cuba gives out, people try to give back to Cuba. So we take on projects. The, the government sends out a list of projects that it needs help with. And so the, the last few projects, the last few years that we have done, it's been to, uh, for the integration of disabled pe people into, the, into in the libraries and other institutions, except this year we've changed it, and this year we're fundraising towards a neurological unit in eastern Cuba. So we're given choices, and it's a great pleasure for us to give just a little bit back. Um, so while the main emphasis is on primary health and prevention of disease, they also have sophisticated medicine at all levels. But because of their forced uh, economic isolation, they've had to rely on their own expertise. And about 80% of medicines are actually made in Cuba, and the rest coming from the former USSR, China, and some from Europe. Replacement parts for medical equipment and machinery, though can be difficult to obtain because of the blockade, but they manage somehow. Despite limitations, Cuba has always been um, committed to responding to medical need in third world countries. At the same time, training doctors from these countries in Cuba for a period of six years, free of charge. They have even trained doctors from poor black uh, communities in the United States on the proviso that those 
the doc those trained doctors go back into their own communities and work within their communities for at least five years. Um, and they have an international medical school in uh, Cuba for this very purpose uh, in Havana. Uh, Cuba has a program in the Caribbean, whereas they take poor people in need of cataract operations to Cuba for these free procedures. It's called the Miracle Program by its recipients who regain their sight. And more than a million people have been helped by this program. Uh, and that's it. Let there be light. Um, so, uh, Cuba has also contributed greatly to the services for the poor and needy in communities in Africa. And currently, they're working with Ebola patients in West Africa. Cuba is often the first to send medical teams to natural disasters. And this is included in their medical training, and possibly because they're in the Caribbean and it is prone to uh, hurricanes. But uh, they will go wherever they are needed, and they're ready to go quickly. And uh, they're very good at setting up field hospitals at short notice. When Hurricane George hit Haiti in 1998, the Haitian government asked for help from Cuba. And Cuba responded immediately by putting 100 doctors on the ground. Um, and the Cubans stayed on after that, um, giving free medical treatment to the Haitian people, including the, ophthalmo the ophthalmic um, program that they'd done in the Caribbean. They did it on the ground in Haiti as well. And then when the devastating earthquake hit Haiti in 2010, where 300,000 people were killed, um, they added greatly to those medical people already on the ground, providing care for the survivors, including the 100,000 homeless people. And after two months, all the medical teams, except the Cubans and the Médecins Sans Frontières, uh, departed, but the Cubans remained, uh, and they dealt with a series of um, cholera outbreaks that, uh, that occurred following the hor that horrific event. And the doctor in charge of the Cuban medical team there said, in relation to their work recently, we do, as we do it, we grow as human beings. And really, it has to be an intrinsic reward for the doctors and for, for all the work that they do in the world because they don't get very much pay for it. In fact, I think all the people, the agricultural workers, get about the same money, which is a very uh, small amount. So they have to get the reward coming from inside, from the heart. And they receive little or no recognition for this, as also for the many other humanitarian works, such as a similar response to the Pakistan earthquake and the more recent Nepalese earthquake. But we don't read about it. Um, I viewed a film also documenting uh, the DVD, documenting their work in Chernobyl after the nuclear meltdown. Ukraine, the Ukraine was unable to deal adequately with the vast numbers of affected people, especially the children and those living uh, uh, close to the meltdown, in the close perimeter to the meltdown. So what Cuba did, they set up a treatment and referral center in the south of the Ukraine, in the Crimea. 
and where they treated some, but the, the more difficult cases were sent over to Cuba where they were treated with the top cancer specialists in Cuba. And if the children, the mothers would accompany the children. Now some of, it, some of those children, it took many years of treatment and in fact some of them are still there today. Uh, when Indonesia withdrew from East Timor, the country was left with no medical workers. At the request of the new government, Cuba sent 300 medical workers on the ground and took 700 <coughs> East Timorese back to Cuba for the six years medical training. And I'll just uh, mention that we, have, we had, as a member of our group in West Australia, a Dr. Catherine Edivane, and she lived here in White Gum Valley. Unfortunately, she died in December last year of cancer. But she uh, did her surgical training in West Australia and asked for her final prac to be in Cuba because she had heard about the, the work that they were doing there. And she was so impressed when she went over there that she actually dedicated many uh, years of her life to working with Cuban doctors in different parts of the world. And uh, she was, um, only just late last year, just before she died, she was uh, given, um, she was awarded the Royal Academy of Surgeons International Medal at the University of WA for the work that she'd done. Uh, and she also, just before that event, she addressed our group we had a number of people that were going to Cuba for the first time and she said when you go to Cuba you will return changed and, and that's what I have found and that's what many of the people that I know have felt about Cuba. And as Fidel points out to its many critics in the United States we export doctors not arms. So why does this small socialist country succeed when so many others have failed to live up to their original ideals. Russia, China, North Korea, and others appear to have taken on uh, power, greed, and totalitarianism. Other South American nations like Venezuela, Argentina, Ecuador, and others have struggled to emulate Cuba, but are battling against the powerful forces of capitalism from within and from without. Bolivia, under the indigenous leadership of Evo Morales, comes closer, but it also struggles. So I don't have all the answers, but the changes wrought by the revolution are underpinned by heroic idealism. And liberation and inspirational leaders such as Fidel Castro and uh, Che Guevara and others. Out of painful beginnings, Cuba has grown profoundly from its struggles. It has benefited from leaders who have upheld the original ideas against all odds. It still has many obstacles to overcome, but I'm hope that, hoping that it will meet these in ways that it has done in the past. And just as, as Aitken Roshi says, giving ennobles. My observations are that giving ennobles, and when a society as a whole gives, this is amplified greatly. When society doesn't act in this way, we see its fruits in homelessness, in cruelty to refugees, in workers' rights being diminished, and the destruction of our beautiful and generous planet.